Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be gathered together with brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, it's an exciting time when we get to worship. We take it for granted. It becomes almost just something we do in our week. And yet, around the world, there are people taking their life in their hands for the privilege of doing what we do without any interference. So, Lord, I pray that today would be a wonderful day for us. I pray, Lord, that as we deal with the sin in our hearts, that we would confess it and turn from it. I pray, Lord, that this would be a place of refuge, not a place of condemnation. And I pray, Lord, that you would convict us of sin, but also remind us of the hope that comes of the cross. I pray, Lord, for the teaching time this morning and for the teaching time of Pastor Steve later. pray that you empower us by your spirit to preach truth. And I pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts that are quick to process and obey what you're teaching us. We love you, Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in the midst of sort of a, the home stretch of a lengthy study, of course, of the book of Hebrews. And as we are coming to the end of the book, what we find is a series of concluding exhortations and reminders that are attempting to get the original recipients of the book to live out the truths that they've already been taught in the letter. If you could picture in the time that this letter was sent, there weren't chapter numbers, there weren't verse numbers. It was just a lengthy, lengthy letter. And if you could imagine someone standing up in front of the church and just reading the entire book of Hebrews all at once. There's a lot of overwhelming taught there. And of course, the church has had leaders. In fact, we're going to see later in this chapter an exhortation about the proper response of church members to leaders. So it's not as though the church didn't have people to help teach. But this letter would have been read all at once. It would have been a lengthy discussion. And after much discussion of theology, what in our books are chapters, reminding them of the centrality and supremacy of Jesus Christ, chapter 11 sort of took, not necessarily detour, but it basically said, look, all that we're talking about, people before you in the Old Covenant were able to walk by faith. And there's these example after example after example of people who live by faith. And the idea is that all of this truth is supposed to translate into a certain type of living. I've read it the last several weeks. I'm going to read it again today. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it really is a synopsis of the focus of, if you could take a takeaway from the book of Hebrews, this would be it. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The book has much more in it, but that is a good synopsis of the so what. Why are we reading this? Because we want to lay aside those encumbrances. We want to lay aside sin and we want to fix our eyes on Jesus and press on in the Christian walk. Jesus is everything. If you get your eyes off of Jesus, everything else just goes to pieces. Over the centuries, countless people have got into works and doing this and that and the other. And they lose sight of Jesus and it all becomes worthless. And so the exhortation to us is that every moment of every day we should be striving to live our lives in a way that is thankful to God for what he's done, but is also obedient to his word. 
Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. So as we continue this morning in Hebrews chapter 13, this is our focus. We're looking at this morning on some practical applicational aspects of this that will help us in our task. The beginnings of chapter 13 really were focused on this practical living. And some of that we won't reteach what we've covered in verses 1 through 6, but it was really focused initially on selflessness, showing love to others through practical, tangible ways that wasn't obsessed with self, but you're focused on others. And this danger of selfishness, of self-absorption, had some specific application in the context of marriage, which every believer is supposed to honor whether you're married or not. And certainly sexual sin dishonors marriage. But also we're supposed to be free from the love of money because that becomes self-centered and we become focused on us and our needs and then that leads to covetousness and we have an open door to sin. So as we are dealing this morning with new verses, it's not really a new theory or a new theme. In one sense, you've had all of this instruction, and I was thinking in my mind yesterday of how would I describe chapter 13, because it's a a few, it's not necessarily disjointed, but it's a few different types of exhortation that kind of come together, and I thought about it, and it's sort of like that last speech the coach gives before the team runs on the field. He's already coached them up. He's already gone over everything, but right before they go on the field, he gives a few reminders. Okay, let me remind you. We've talked about these things. Let me going. And and I almost sense that as we come to the end of the book of Hebrews, that's sort of what's happening. Some reminders for us of, hey, this is important. You should be doing this. And the truths this morning really have to do with walking consistently in our faith, of stability of our faith, of standing firm in the truths that we've been taught. And this idea of standing firm is a recurring theme in Hebrews. You don't necessarily have to turn there, but for example, in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, he's just contrasted Moses, who was a faithful servant, and he's contrasting Moses with Jesus, because again, the Jewish people to whom this was originally written, Jewish people who'd come into the church, they had a high view of Moses, they needed a higher view of Jesus. He says, Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later, verse 6. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Similarly, in Hebrews 6, verses 11 and 12, it says, And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Everything about this is designed to keep us in the game for the long haul. And this morning, we're going to be covering verses 7 to 9. We probably will only get into 7 and 8. I'll introduce verse 9, but I think it's probably going to require another week. We'll see. But really, as I tried to come up with an idea, how does this fit into the context of Hebrews, I realized these are steps that can help you stand firm in your faith. So the way these verses are laid out, it's a simple outline. Three steps to help you stand firm in your faith. And I should say something as a backdrop real quick. Just give you an idea of how I think and how I approach things. Outlines are just a teaching tool. You you understand that. Those aren't in the scriptures. But I try and make sure that I don't develop outlines that are foreign to the text. 
Because I could always come up with something creative. But if it's not what God intended, what's the point? And so if you see at the top of my notes, every time I teach, I have the word purpose. I never read it to you. But it says purpose. And every time I teach, I want to know why is this in the Bible? What's it here for? Because if I'm not telling you that, I'm not doing my job as a teacher. If I've thought and prayed through it, and I think, what is the purpose of this in Scripture, and then I don't teach that, I'm missing the point. Because I've got to teach you what I think God wanted to teach us. And so, this morning, my three-part outline comes from my one sentence of what I think the focus is. So I'm going to read verses 7 through 9, and then we're going to get into the three steps to help you stand firm in your faith. Beginning at verse 7. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. Even though it might not jump out at you, these are very much interrelated and connected ideas. So let me start with verse 7, and it really is the first step to help you stand firm in your faith. It's this, imitate godly examples. This isn't profound. It's not inordinately creative. Imitate godly examples. And this really is exactly what is being said in verse 7. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. It all starts with that exhortation to remember. I think because of the frequency that you see the word remember or similar words in Scripture... The human propensity to forget is always at the forefront. The writer of Hebrews has already sort of gone down this road of having them remember something in the past that would help them walking in faith. Chapter 10, verse 32, it says, But remember the former days when after being enlightened you endured a great conflict of sufferings. He was having them recall back their personal experience when they had endured hardship so that they would endure again. But what happens in human experience, and I'm not telling you anything you don't know, life keeps going. Life moves on. Circumstances change. And things that happened in the past, even though at the time they were seared into our consciousness, suddenly drift away and we forget about them. But some things shouldn't fade away. Some things we should work to recall. Some things we should have at the forefront of our minds on a regular basis. Certainly that should always be the case with God's Word. The Scriptures over and over again tell us to think about God's Word and to meditate. Psalm 103 talks about remember His precepts to do them. That's in Psalm 103 verse 18. God quite often calls us to remember His past acts. Psalm 105, 4 and 5, you see this. Seek the Lord in His strength. Seek His face continually. Remember His wonders, which He has done, His marvels and the judgments uttered by His mouths. Those were exhortations to Old Testament saints, but they have equal applicability. We're supposed to think about what God has done. We're supposed to remember the faithfulness of God. 2 Timothy 2, 8 was even more direct. Remember Jesus Christ. 
risen from the dead, the descendant of David, according to my gospel. Think about what was going on that Paul would have to exhort that. The writer of Hebrews knows that if we're to stand firm in our faith, our minds have to be centered on correct things. Because there is a lot going on that can distract us from the greatest thing. It's the reason the opening verses that I read from chapter 12 say, Fixing your eyes on Jesus. Because it's so easy for our eyes to get distracted to everything. And in this case, what the writer is telling us is not just remember and then move on. He's saying, remember, keep remembering. Keep remembering. Keep this in the forefront of your mind. He says, remember those who led you. Some of the translations that you would have, I read from the New American Standard. Some other translations reference leaders. And that's an accurate statement. He's saying, remember your leaders. Now, this term that's translated leaders, or it's translated in my version, who led you, is sort of a generic term in the Greek. It can apply to government leaders. It can apply to military leaders. The word itself is not the word that's normally translated for pastors or something like that. But in the context, it's very clear it's referring to spiritual leaders. Religious leaders. And we know this because of what it says. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you. These are not just general leaders. These are people who spoke the word of God to the individuals receiving this letter. And the context suggests some of the language, reading a lot of other commentators that delve into the nuances, make it clear. It seems like this is probably referring to the leaders who originally preached the gospel to them, who led them to Christ. Either way, these hearers are being told, remember those who led you, who taught you the word of God. Now, they're no doubt supposed to remember their teaching. Verse 9 is going to talk about keeping focused on truth. But in this context, he says something interesting in terms of what he specifically wants to make sure they remember about these leaders' lives. He says this, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Now again, different English versions, as is normally the case, translate words differently. But this phrase, considering the result of their conduct, in my view, doesn't necessarily capture in English the best understanding of what's going on. I I have the ESV, and I think it has a better focus. And what I want to be careful about, Pastor Steve is our leader here. This verse, I don't believe is teaching, look at Pastor Steve. Certainly there are other verses that say that, and I'll get there. It's not saying look at Pastor Steve or look at Joe. Reading from the ESV, that same phrase is said this way, consider the outcome of their way of life. If you have the NIV or a New King James, it's slightly variations. But it seems from this entirety of phraseology that these individuals that he's saying remember probably are already dead. In other words, these are saints of old who had a personal impact in their lives. They brought them the word of God, but they've since passed away. And what he's saying is, look at the sum total of their life. Not a snapshot. At any minute snapshot, all of us look pretty rough. But look at the life that they lived from when they came to Christ to when they died. Look at the outcome. Look at the results. 
And when you see how positive that is, imitate that. I think that's the reminder here. That's what's coming forward. In a sense, I think conceptually it's very much like Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, written primarily originally to a Jewish Christian audience, was looking back at heroes of the Jewish faith that you could identify from the Old Testament and was telling them, look, if they did it by faith, you can do it by faith. Here it's getting a little bit more personal and what he's saying to you is think about your own experience. Think about the own great heroes of the faith that you know that perhaps taught you that impacted you think about what you saw in their lives think about godly people you know who've gone on to be with the Lord people who lived out their faith consistently not perfectly if you think they lived perfectly you didn't know them very well but think about the good example they left you and then this verse says imitate their faith They say imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Well, in this case, imitation is a command of God. Do you want to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? Do you want to escape entanglements? Do you want to lay aside sin? Do you want to fix your eyes on Jesus? Then look at those who have gone before you who did that and emulate their faith. Did they pray regularly? Then you pray. Did they read the word of God every day? Then you follow their example. You do that. Did they reach out to others with generosity on a regular basis? Then you be generous. On and on it goes. The application is personal to each one of us. Because each one of us has a different group of people that pop into our minds when we think of those who taught us the word of God. If you are new in the faith, it might not be that you have older saints that you know that you could say, I'm going to look at their lives. Look at those around you. But for those of us who have been believers long enough, you know that there are teachers that impacted you that are home with the Lord. The Bible holds up imitation of godly men and women as a good thing. Imitate them. Very familiar verses where Paul exhorts this. 1 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17. Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. But I think is interesting is verse 17. For this reason I've sent to you Timothy who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. And he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ just as I teach everywhere in every church. In other words, you might not remember what I do. I'm sending Timothy. He'll remind you. And then imitate it. But Paul wasn't being arrogant. 1 Corinthians 11.1 really summarizes what he's saying. Be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. This is the same Paul who saw himself as the worst of sinners. He wasn't ignorant of his limitations. But to the extent he was following Christ, he said, you follow me, I'll show you the way. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, he made it very simple. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us and offering and sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So this concept is we're to look back over our lives and if we have godly examples in our lives, men or women who walked by faith, particularly church leaders, which would have been men who were guiding you in the word of God, you see good things in their lives, you do that. You follow them. You follow their example. Again, the writer of Hebrews has already told us to be imitators. 
I read this verse earlier, so I'll just give you the reference. Verses, chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. Verse 12, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those. So let me encourage you. Think through your life. Think of the people that you admire. Think of the people who made an impact on you through their leadership in the body of Christ. And think about the godly things that they did and you do those. So the first step to help you stand firm in your faith is to imitate godly examples. And the second step is this. Remember that Jesus never changes. Remember Jesus never changes. Now when you come as a teacher to a verse like Hebrews 13 verse 8. It's challenging to teach. Because everybody everywhere has heard this verse. It's quoted time and time and time again. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. It's one of the most familiar and oft-quoted verses in the book of Hebrews. And this verse, in its context, rightly understood, is supposed to encourage us and sustain us as God's children. And yet this beautiful and succinct truth has been distorted beyond recognition time and time again, and it continues in the life of the church. I don't believe it's distorted at Lakeside, but you're not only impacted by what you hear at Lakeside. You're impacted by other believers that you interact with in other contexts who are hearing teachers wrongly use it. You can't turn on the TV without being exposed to bad teachers who use this verse to justify bad theology. What's fascinating to me, every time I study a scripture, the first thing I do is I, I start with the English text. I don't read Greek proficiently. I studied Greek in seminary. But then I have a separate document that I should have brought to show you. And it has laid out in column format the Greek text, then the English translation that I use, and then four other English translations, three or four other English translations. What I want to do is I want to study the text myself first. I want to be able to look at the Greek to see the word order and to see whether there's a particular emphasis that doesn't jump out in English. But I also like to see where is it translated differently. Because sometimes that will be a clue to me before I get into commentaries and things where there might be interpretational difficulties. Can I tell you this is one of the few verses you ever come to? No version translates any differently. Every single verse translated the same. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. The Greek is very clear. It's not hard to understand. That's what it says. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So I want to first cover, so that we don't have any confusion, exactly what this actually means. And in its context, how it's supposed to encourage us and then, depending on time, I'm going to introduce next week's teaching, which will cover primarily verse 9, but is greatly impacted by errors related to verse 8. So let's look at this text again. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Three times in the book of Hebrews, the writer uses Jesus Christ together. And I did not know this as a new believer. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ has to do with the divine office that he had. 
And so combining these two, it certainly is a reference to Jesus' earthly name, his humanity, but it's also to his heavenly divine calling. It emphasizes his humanity and his divine mission, Jesus Christ. The writer used this in Hebrews 10.10, who used it again in Hebrews 13.21. But remember, everything about this book is focused on Jesus The original recipients of this letter were being distracted from the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Some of them were even wondering, maybe we need all the old sacrifices plus Jesus. And the primary theological thrust of the book from chapter 5 through chapter 10 is that there is nothing else you need. In fact, if you have anything besides Jesus, you don't have Jesus. Because there's nothing else that can take away sin. It's Jesus and he alone. It's only his blood that can cleanse us. He is the only great high priest. He's the only one that offered a sacrifice that truly atones for our sins. Even now, he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. His atoning work is done. So using this combined terminology, Jesus Christ, really is an emphatic reminder of all that was accomplished by Jesus when he was on the earth. And it's a reminder of the theological truths that have preceded This portion of the scripture. So Jesus Christ. Is the same yesterday. And today. And forever. This is supposed to be. A comprehensive picture. Of the unchanging nature. Of our savior. It provides us. With astounding encouragement. When we think rightly about it given the constantly changing nature of our own lives. And we see part of the reason for the encouragement for this in the context of the book. Remember, Hebrews chapter 11 had saint after saint after saint who had walked by faith. And with the exception of Enoch, they all died. So they're good reminders, but they're dead. Even in verse 7, he's reminding them of former leaders that they had... But again, from the context, I believe what others have interpreted correctly is that those leaders are dead. And even as he's calling them to remember them, he's reminding them that our Savior and their Savior is alive. The promise of God is that even though godly humans come and go and other things change, there's a constant that never changes and it's Jesus Christ. One day, I will, unless the Lord returns, I'll die. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Pastor Steve will die one day. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Think of other famous Christians that you know, other godly people you know. One day they're going to die. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. This goes way beyond just human examples, the immediate context of verse 7. The world around us is swirling and shifting and changing, but Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And what is the ultimate focus? It's comprehensive, certainly it encompasses many, many things, but remember this was written to believers, some of whom were waffling, wavering. And the book 
identifies and acknowledges that life is hard for believers. There's persecution. There's hardship. There's struggles against sin. There are countless things to distract us. And God understands that we fit in that category. Things are constantly pulling and tugging and grabbing at us. And in the midst of all the swirling difficulty, in the midst of all the sin that we see around us, in the midst of our own struggles and our own physical frailties, and in the midst of the disappointment and hardships that come from so many areas of life, even we can doubt. Even we can struggle a little bit and start wondering. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Go back up in Hebrews to chapter 10 for just a moment. Because the most pressing issue that you face is the assurance that if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, your account is clean with God. I think of the words of songs a lot. And I'm now I've got the words that I want to say to you and I can't remember the song to go with and I'm trying to sing it in my head and I can't sing that fast. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. That's the kind of encouragement I think is intended by verse 8. In Hebrews 10, beginning at verse 11, we're really coming to the end of this greatest theological section of the book And he says this, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Stop for just a moment. That's the futility of human effort. Now those sacrifices were not bad. God's the one that told the priest to be doing that. But at the end of the day, they were a picture of futility because over and over and over again it was happening and we would still be in our guilt. Verse 12, but he having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. That's the Jesus who's the same yesterday and today and forever. His atoning work on the cross is sufficient forever. It doesn't change. Satan doesn't have the upper hand on God. We look at the world and there's enough to make us pull our hair out. We had a Supreme Court justice died this week. And we have someone in office that probably would appoint a completely different type of justice. As a former lawyer, I pay close attention to that kind of stuff. My first thought was almost despair. Now, it was one of those rare times where... Well, I shouldn't say rare, but I praise the Lord that God immediately got my attention. And I realized, you know what? The Lord's sovereign. I'm not going to get too concerned about this. But this picture of a Savior who shed his blood for miserable sinners like us, and the blood was sufficient, the sins were cleansed, and now he's seated at the right hand of God. And one day, all is going to be made right. That's the hope we need to live in. As we look in the mirror and we look at the world around us, it never changes. Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. Our sins are forgiven if we know him. Praise the Lord. We never have to fear that Jesus is going to change his mind about our salvation. 
We never have to fear that suddenly the world got out of control and God was, oops, oh man, I missed it. No, 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 no. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. First popped in my mind. You can just write down the reference. I'm going to read it. Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And in the nature of things, I think it's fair to say, I don't know that a week goes by that I'm not dealing with sin. Now, certainly I know I'm dealing with sin in my own life every day. But being a pastor at the church, you see hurting people, many of them suffering from self-inflicted wounds. And when you carry other people's burdens, they can get heavy in your own heart. And they can weigh you down. But I don't know that I take greater comfort from a verse, and you could say that, and it's a little bit hyperbolic. There are a lot of verses that comfort me, but I remind myself from time to time of this verse, and I think it fits well with Hebrews 13.8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Colossians 2.13, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. That should encourage you. If you're like me, you remember your sins. You remember what you've done. The promise that those sins and the punishment for those sins have been nailed to the cross. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And the assurance of Hebrews 13.8 is that God's not changing his mind. Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. This gives us hope and encouragement of the eternal saving character of our great high priest, Jesus Christ. So be encouraged by that. I don't know of anything that hinders standing firm in the faith more than feeling guilty. And if you feel guilty because you've not confessed your sin or because you're sinning more, that's good guilt. Repent, stop. But if you've confessed your sins to God and periodically they creep up, it's almost like Satan's whispering in your ear saying, you're worthless. Why are you even bothering going to church? Don't you remember what you did? We have the hope that that condemnation has been nailed to the cross. And God's not changing his mind. I think that's the focus of Hebrews 13.8. That's what we're supposed to think about. That the God that would save miserable sinners like us didn't change his mind. He loved us. We're not lovely, but he loved us. And he sent his son to die for us. And that death isn't going to be taken away. It's applied to our account. And the application doesn't change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So I want you to focus on that. Let that be the takeaway of your mind. Remember that about Jesus and be encouraged. But I want to introduce an idea that I'm going to develop next week. And I was thinking on the way to church this morning as I was driving here. 
I was thinking about what I was going to teach, and I already, because I study in the way I know what's coming, I thought if people truly understand what I'm saying next week, I could probably offend a lot of people. I'm confident that some of you, it's not that you're not smart, it's just that I'm a lawyer, so I'll speak in enough qualifications that maybe you won't get the full grasp of it. That's not on you, that's on me. So I'm trying to prepare my heart to speak boldly and bluntly and not sugarcoat things. But look ahead to verse 9. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. That first clause, the bottom part I'll explain next week, explains, you know, it's an application in the context of the original hearers of that first clause. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. Here's what jumped out at me. We live in a Christian culture in America with more varied and strange teachings than I can comprehend. And here's what I know. People at Lakeside are absorbing them and saying amen. How do I know that? Because I talk to people. And I see people that are really excited about some books they shouldn't be excited about. And they're excited about things they've heard or a testimony they've heard and they ought not be excited about it. And they're really encouraged because so-and-so is going to be speaking and they can't wait to hear him and they should be running the other direction. Some of it comes from just being new in the faith. I know when I was a new believer, I was already an attorney. I wasn't dumb. I just didn't know anything. (laughs) So I would listen to people and if they sounded good, I would listen. I mean, they open up the Bible. I look at my Bible. And over time, the Lord gives you discernment and wisdom. And so I've got a lot of sympathy for new believers because I know I listened and read a lot of things just out of ignorance. I didn't know. But what I see more and more and more is Christians who should know better drifting off into, well, that can't really be damaging. I'm intrigued. That can't really be bad. Some of the people giving, spreading these varied and strange teachings have good credentials. They went to good schools. Some of them have good affiliations in terms of the churches they come out of. But it doesn't change the fact that their teaching is bad. And a lot of the bad teaching can be tied to Hebrews 13.8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. I think I'm going to leave it at that. I've got some illustrations in my notes, but if I pull out those illustrations, I could detract from the overarching teaching. Just know this. Next week, I'm going to be talking about the sufficiency of God's Word. I can tell you, There are people that are listening to so-called teaching coming from other people's dreams. You don't need it. It's got the Word of God. There are people listening to somebody that said, God spoke to me. You don't need it. You have the Word of God. There are people being influenced by someone who supposedly spoke to someone who spoke to someone who spoke to someone who spoke to someone who did this or that miraculous thing. You don't need it. You've got the Word of God. So next week as your pastor... I'm going to be emphasizing the need that those of you here have to take seriously the exhortation, do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. 
And I'm going to give you some practical warnings about how people use verse 8 to set the hook in your mouth. Because we all agree with verse 8. And then sometimes the shiny thing, we grab it and the hook's in us before we know it. So next week is going to be a pastoral talk on Hebrews 13.9. But it's also going to be an exhortation to you to be on the alert, to be on guard, so that none of us are carried away by varied and strained teachings. So let me close our time this morning with a word of prayer. And I look forward to seeing you next week. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truths of your word. Lord, as we think back on our life in Christ, probably most of us can think about godly examples, godly leaders we had in churches who taught us the word of God and who lived godly lives. Lord, I pray that you would help us to think through those types of people and emulate their faith. Pray, Lord, that you would help us imitate the godly parts of their character. So many times we see someone who does something, we say, wow, that's neat. Lord, help us have hearts that say, no, I'm going to follow. I'm going to do that. And Lord, every week I feel like a broken record because every week I watch the news and the world is rapidly changing under our feet. Our society is shifting. Our political environment is shifting. The alliances of different governments around the world are shifting. And Lord, the struggles that we face as individuals in our own families, in our own jobs, against our own hearts are shifting. In the midst of that, Lord, encourage us and help us remember that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. That our salvation is permanent. Once it's been applied to our account, you'll never take it away. Lord, I pray that that type of assurance wouldn't cause us to say, well, we can sin more, it's forgiven. But Lord, it would help us hate our sin even more. It would help us to be quick to confess our sin. It would be help us to turn from it. Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged by that truth. That our Savior doesn't change. And our salvation is secure. Strengthen us with that truth and help us to walk in obedience to you this week. We ask all of these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.